Romans chapter 2. We got down through about verse 5 last time. And, you know, I, I want to try real hard. And it's hard for me to keep all things in order. I do want to dig into each verse as we typically do. But I want to get the whole picture of what he's saying too. As we move on, we're, we're building as we go. So the first chapter after the introduction, we have the gospel introduced and the sin of mankind as a whole. Natural man, the Gentile world, the pagans, and their natural descent in sin. And you know, I believe you can look through the book, through history, through the last 50 years, you can see it over and over and over and over again with civilizations, with nations, with countries. In Noah's day, from Adam to Noah, the world was going down into sin. God judged it. Israel, all through the book of Judges, would go down in sin, cry for deliverance, God would deliver, and they went back down in sin. It was a roller coaster all through the book of Judges. You could look at the United States where it started and it has been a decline in sin from the start. And look where we are today. The God's truth, and maybe this is cliche, but 20 years ago you'd have never thought the country would have the mindset and the thinking that it's got today as a whole. Yet there we are. That is the natural course of mankind left to himself apart from the gospel. But there's another part of man as well. All of man's not going headlong into sin. There's, there's still some decent people in our world. Moral people. Church going people. Maybe people raised up with uh, uh, an understanding of the word of God. Not saved. They're still lost. Yet they're not in the, the reaches of sin that the world is in. Well, that's what we're dealing with here in chapter 2. Here is a people that is more moral. They are not actively in the open wickedness that the world is in. Perhaps they go to the synagogue. They go to the church. Maybe faithfully. Maybe every now and then. Perhaps they believe in God. They believe in God's law. They want to be a good person and they want to try to be a hell. And yet, they're sinners as well. And the nature of this is that the more moral person looks at the wickedness of another and judges them. And I, I believe you see this, and, and I've heard these exact words there's a special place in hell for people like that. And I believe it was a child molester that was being spoken about when those words were said. Uh, a dark, dark wickedness. And evil. And yet, the person that said that, there's no evidence of salvation in their life. But they're better than him. So that person's going to be judged and I'm going to get by. Well, Paul here is 
He's laid out the wickedness of the world. And in Romans 1, I believe everybody that goes to church could shout and hoop and holler when you begin to teach or to preach about the sin that's in the world, no matter what it is. But when we start to dig at us, really, it's not as easy to agree with or to see. So Paul here, he says, you're judging those that are without. You'd like to see God bring destruction on them that are in sin when you yourself are in sin. You'd like to see God judge these wicked lawbreakers when you're a wicked lawbreaker. Do you think you're going to get around the judgment of God? That's what he says in verse 3. Are you going to escape the judgment? This judgment that you openly say is coming on this wicked world that we're living in, these wicked people that do these wicked deeds, God's going to judge them. Well, is He going to judge you too? All of man's going to be judged. The day is appointed. That's what God was doing in Noah's day, the 120 years. God was appointing the day that judgment was going to come on the whole world. God's appointed a day today. And the world that now is, is reserved unto fire against that day. So the judgment is coming. Or despisest thou the riches of His goodness? Verse 4. They despised that God was long-suffering with this wicked world. They wanted judgment to come. You remember James and John. They turned to Jesus and said, Would you like for us to call fire down out of heaven on these people? Elijah did that. The fire came down and took the prophets of Baal. And Jesus said, you don't know what I'm here for. I've not come to destroy men's lives, but to save. The mission and the desire of Christ was not that man would be judged. Rest assured, man's going to be judged. But God is long-suffering as He is with mankind today that they might be led to repentance. You look at the goodness of God on wicked man and all that He allows man to do. And you know, man takes that long-suffering and mercy and turns it into an excuse to sin. Man believes he's going to get away with it. Man thinks God's not seeing. But it's God's goodness that would lead you to repentance and salvation and the escaping of the judgment of God. You remember we looked at Jonah and how that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He got on a ship to sail. God sent a storm. Jonah was cast into the sea and God sent a whale to swallow him up. Jonah was in complete rebellion to what God had commanded him to do. Could God not have at any point destroyed him and been just. But you know what God was? God was long-suffering and God was going to give Jonah I'm not, I'm not even going to say give. God was going to bring Jonah to repentance to do the will of God. And He did. God's long-suffering 
and mercy with Jonah brought him to repentance. He was spit out on dry land and he went to Nineveh to preach. He began to, to speak the word of God unto the Ninevites. And they repented in sackcloth and ashes. And after 40 days was up and destruction didn't come, Jonah was angry because that wicked nation of Assyria, and I said last week they were wicked because they, didn't, they were not destroyed. And Jonah said, God, I knew you wouldn't destroy them. I knew you would be merciful and long-suffering. So just take my life from me. And he pouted and he was mad. That's the way man is. Unable to realize and to see just how good God's been to you. Just how long-suffering God has been with you. Just how many times that the angel stood with a sword drawn and the Lord allowed the ass that we were riding on to see and to stop that we wouldn't be destroyed. How many times that God was merciful with you and with me. No, it's man can't see that for himself. And he hates that God is long-suffering with another. Well, know this. God's desire is that man would come to repentance. The day of judgment is appointed. It's appointed for each one of us. But God's long-suffering, desiring that we would come to repentance. Verse 5, Thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath. So man thinks that he's going to reject knowledge and reject the Word and there be no consequence to that action. Well, that's simply not true. God may be long-suffering. God may be merciful. God may extend opportunity and God may give out knowledge through the Word of God unto man. And you may reject it and go home and live another hundred years after that. You may reject it and think, well, I'm better off now than I was before. But that's not true. God says this hardness, and that's callousness. Callous that comes from repeat, repeated use. It builds over time, and the feeling gradually goes away. And impenitent, unwilling to repent, unwilling to change the mind. After your hardness and impenitent heart, you're laying up wrath. God is becoming more and more angry with those that turn and reject and refuse the knowledge of God. Those that will not change their mind to what God says, the wrath of God is building against those. Now that would imply that in the judgment, there's going to be difference made. And there is going to be difference in judgment. Not based on what you and I think. Like that young man with the pedophile. He thought, well, he's done more wicked outwardly. He ought to be judged harsher. Well, Jesus speaking to a, uh, uh, I would say, if not 100%, 95% Jewish city, Bethsaida, Jerazen, these places where they believed, where they had the law of God, 
where they openly believed in God, where they prayed to God, where they were taught by the rabbis at the synagogue, where they had an understanding, and where Jesus had been and wrought many mighty works. A good place, outwardly. God compared them to Sodom and Gomorrah. I should have said it before, and I've said it. When you think of the most wicked city that's ever been, what's the first place that comes to your mind? may not be 100%, but I would say the vast majority, Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah. The most wicked place that's ever been. It's got to be it. Well, Jesus Christ's own words said in the day of judgment, it's going to be more tolerable. It's not going to be as severe on Sodom as it is for you where I've been and where I've taught. So what's the difference? It's, I, I think we can agree. It cannot be that they had done more sin than Sodom. We all know Sodom was more wicked. But it was that they had knowledge of God and rejected it. They had treasured up the wrath of God by not coming to repentance. By not answering the call of God. So, verse 6. This judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. God's judgment you think it's going to be fair in judgment? God's going to be fair. He's going to be equitable is the word. means it's going to be even for everybody. Everybody's going to have to stand up to the same standard and the same penalty of the law. That's not the case today in our country and in our world, everybody's not held accountable to the same standard. Depending on who you are, depending on who you know, depending on how much you can pay, you can get a lighter standard than what somebody else might be held up to. God's standard is not going to change for anybody. Remember, He's not a respecter of men's persons. God's not looking at the last name. God's not looking at the family. And He's not looking at the church that they attended. But God is going to judge every man according to his deeds. This, I believe, and I, I may be getting ahead myself because I don't have it wrote down for right here. But I think this is very, very eye-opening to this fact. In Hebrews... Chapter 11, he's speaking of Moses. And in verse 28, this is what God wrote about Moses. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So by faith, Moses killed the Passover lamb. He put the blood on the lintel and on the doorposts of the door. And he went in with his family and they roasted it with fire and they ate it. You know why Moses did that? 
it says lest. If Moses, the man of God, the man appointed of God to be the leader of the children of Israel, the man selected by God to stand in his presence on Mount Sinai and receive the law of God, the man that God put his hand over and allowed him to see his glory, the man that God spoke to as a friend face to face, if Moses had not put blood and done as God prescribed, the death of the firstborn would have came into his household. God wasn't looking at who was living in the house. God wasn't looking at whose name was on the mailbox. God was judging every man as to whether they had done what he said to do or not. That's the way God's going to do us as well. We're going to be tried, every man, according to his deeds. Now is that a kind of judgment that you want to face with your reputation and with your works? You, you need not worry whether God's going to be fair or not, okay? God's going to be fair in judgment. He's not going to shortchange. He's not going to do one. Let's look in Ezekiel chapter 18. Now God's going to reason with them here. They thought they had reason or an issue against the Lord. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse number 30, and then we'll back up and read a couple other verses. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, Every one according to his ways, saith the Lord God. So, sounds exactly like what we've read in Romans. God's not changed. His method has not changed. God says, I'm going to judge everyone individually according to your life and your deeds. So, what should be the uh, message that I get from that? Well, he's going to finish. This is still verse 30 of Ezekiel 18. Repent and turn yourselves from your transgressions so iniquity shall not be your ruin. When I hear that God's going to judge and He's going to judge sin and He's going to judge me individually and I'm going to stand before Him and all of my deeds are going to be tried that ought to bring me to a place that, you know, I'm in trouble. I need to repent so that all my iniquity wouldn't be my ruin. So the church here in, in Romans chapter 2, they see that iniquity is going to be the ruin of the world. What about our iniquity? Is iniquity going to be your ruin as well? Listen to this. Yet you say... Why doth not the Son bear the iniquity of the Father? Now this was the thinking back then. I'll sin and I won't have to deal with that. God will judge my Son for it. Now that's... We're going to get, get away with it. But listen, in verse 20. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Have you sinned? Have you sinned? Not, not a list 
of how good you've done. It's not, well, I've broken 10% of what most people have broken. See, when you start cutting hairs like that, how are you going to divide it up? What's the standard? And the free will way of thinking. How much sin do you have to commit to lose it? It, it's muddy in the water. God does not muddy the water. God says the soul that sinneth, you sinned? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Not the body. We're all going to die in the body. Not the man or the woman that sins, they shall die. But the soul of man. Now that's implying that perpetual being that came from the very breath of God in the inward part of every one of us, when we sin, that judgment falls upon us and that soul has to die. The soul can't die though. It's eternal. And so, hellfire and brimstone forever and ever, a perpetual death, but never dying. That's what he's speaking of. The soul that sinneth it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. See, God's fair. If you don't sin, you won't die. But if you sin, you're going to die. It's equitable. See, but there's a problem there. We've all sinned. All of our souls are in danger of the judgment. But now listen to what God says here. But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed and keep all my statutes and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. God's provided a means. And look, it's not, not for the churchgoer, not for the religious person, but God says that if the wicked would turn and repent. You know, Ahab, Ahab was evil, wasn't he? He was an evil and a wicked man. He was opposed to God on every side. He took people's lives for greed and desire of gain. He worshipped false gods and encouraged the nation to worship false gods. He was wicked. But Elijah came to him one day with a word and Ahab was sorry and repented and God said, look at how he repents. I'm not going to bring this evil in his day. God was merciful to Ahab. God's merciful with those that would be willing to repent and turn from their ways. All the transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. By coming... Now what's he talking about here? He's not talking about turning over a new leaf. And I can, I can tell you that right now with a surety. And I'll say you turn you over a leaf today. Do better and be righteous from today onward. And you can't do it. 
those that would say that man's a free moral agent, the right argument for that is, well, stop sinning. If you're free to choose, then choose not to. We can't do it. Man cannot do it of his own self. No, he's talking about coming to the gospel of the Word of God, coming to Christ Jesus for salvation, and the righteousness of Jesus is imputed unto us so that when God sees me, He don't see every deed that I've done. If God saw that, I would die. But He sees Christ's righteousness imputed unto me. He sees what Christ did. That's the only way man's going to be forgiven. He goes farther. I'm still in Ezekiel chapter 18. This is verse 23. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? Sound familiar? This is exactly what we're reading in Romans. God's long-suffering and merciful that the wicked would repent, be forgiven, and escape the judgment. And I say this, if God wanted people to die and go to hell, God could accomplish that very easily. God could have allowed me to die and go to hell and never dealt with my heart. If that was the pleasure and the desire of God, that could easily be accomplished. It could. Verse 24, But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity, and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? That's a question mark. Now he's asking you. Here's a righteous man. Here's a good man. Here's a believer in the Word of God and a man striving to do what's right. Now if he sins, should he live? And you, you know what, man? Well, he's a good man. He's a good fella. I mean, they've been good people all their life. They tried to do right. But did they sin? Is God going to be equitable if He lets them in with no repentance? All His righteousness that He hath done shall not be mentioned. I believe we've got an example of that. You can read in 1 Samuel and you can see Saul be anointed to be king. And you know, Saul had some great works as he was king. God wrought some great deliverances through Saul. The Holy Ghost moved on Saul. But we know how Saul ended. Well, in 1 Chronicles, we've got another account of Saul. It's one chapter long. And it talks about his rejection to do the will of God and him falling on his sword and dying. All of those good works were forgotten. See, that's the way sin does, folks. The judgment of God by the law is perfect righteousness or wickedness. Life is no spot or blemish no sin, no breaking of the law. And death is sin, period. 
So here's a righteous man. He's broken the law. He's committed iniquity. And God says that all his good works are forgotten and the man is guilty of the law. You know what this righteous man needs to do now? He needs to do like the wicked man, wouldn't you say? If God would forgive a wicked man, would he not forgive this man that sinned? But see, the righteous, the righteous has got all that good works to hold on to and to trust in and to say, well, yeah, I've sinned, but look what I've done. Look how I've went to church and look how I've been good. God's not going to judge me like that. I don't, I don't need to be saved. God says, and in his sin that he hath sinned, in them he shall die. So look what you've got. You've got a wicked man that performed all these sins, repented, God forgave him. You've got a righteous man that erred from the way and he's going to die. Now you know what people are going to say? People say it today. It's in verse 25. I'm, I'm just reading right down through this chapter. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not equal. It's not fair. It's not fair that this good person is going to die and they're going to go to hell and here's this wicked man that he's going to die and get to go to heaven. That's not fair. See, that's this, that's this man and the carnal mind right here. The truth is, all of man is hopelessly lost and in danger of the judgment. Know this, 100% of those born of a man and a woman are lost and guilty of sin. All of Adam's race. And if they're going to be delivered, all of man must come to repentance in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear now, O house of Israel, is not my way equal, are not your ways unequal? Is it unfair? God's standard's perfection. He's going to hold every man to that standard. His judgment is going to be according to your deeds. Have you done it? He says in Ephesians or Galatians, the man that doeth them shall live in them. That's a quote from the Old Testament. Have you lived in it? Have you kept the law day by day? Have you done all that God said and you've not erred from the way? Well, know this if you've not. You're going to be judged and you're going to be destroyed. But I've been better than the wicked world. Well, they're going to be judged and they're going to be destroyed too. But you're going with them to the same judgment, to the same standard, and you're going to be held accountable just exactly like they are. What ought we to do? We ought to repent. Now you, you talk about unfair... The ways of the Lord is unequal. It's not fair of God. You know what God did? God took the man, Jesus Christ, which was God in the flesh. 
and he laid all the guilt of the world, all of the sin of the world upon him, and all of the wrath of God was laid on his back and he endured it. Now was that fair to a man that hadn't sinned? It was not fair. But Jesus willingly took that on His back and carried that that we could be saved. That we through repentance and coming to the gospel of the Lord Jesus our iniquity could be done away with and we could be forgiven. That's the way that man is going to escape this death. There is no righteousness that can be done to escape it. Rest assured, all of man is going to be held to the same standard and to the same law. Greg read this in Psalm 130, verse 3, just a few days ago. Lord, if thou mark iniquities, who shall stand? So that word means to take an inventory to estimate. So, you know, if you're going to take an inventory of what you've got in your cupboard, you're probably going to take a sheet of paper and you're going to list down everything that you see in there. So if God then is going to take an inventory, if He's going to make a list of every sin and iniquity that I've committed, that you've committed, how are you going to stand before Him? Remember, one sin, one sin is enough to make me guilty and a lawbreaker. Just exactly like the ones that have sinned a million times. So, all of man, he says all men must repent. Commandeth all men everywhere to repent. It's because of this judgment. So let's look at verse 7. I'm back in Romans 2 again. Verse number 7. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. But to them who are contentious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath. Verse 9 goes with it. We'll never get through those two. But if you read these two verses, if you read them by themselves, if I got up and I didn't say anything else, if Greg got up in just a little while, and he said, turn to Romans 2, and he read these two verses, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing... Well, boy, that sounds like works, don't it? Sounds like them that do well, they're going to be forgiven and enter into life. Do you see how dangerous it is to take a verse or two verses right here to pluck them out of the spot they're sitting in? You could make this say something that it does not say. Couldn't you? You could say right here, well, they've done well, 
They're in heaven today. That's what goes on at funerals. Forget what the whole book says. Let's pick us out these two verses right here and we'll make them say what we need it to say. So we, we know by what we've already looked at, he's not talking about works. So what is he talking about? To them who by patient continuance, that word means a cheerful endurance. They remain under the load, under the weight, under the tribulation. It's the same word in Hebrews 12 when it speaks of Jesus who endured the cross, despising the shame. He stayed under that cross and he done so cheerfully because of the joy that was set before him looking at those that he was going to redeem through the work he was going to complete. So by cheerful endurance, so let's look in Hebrews chapter 10. Verse number 38. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Now, I'm not going to make it say what I want it to say. You just read it, and I believe it's very plain what he's saying. And if you disagree, if you think he's saying something different, you let me know. But he says, we're not of them that draw back to perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So would it be a sound inference that them that believe to the saving of the soul will not draw back unto perdition? It sounds like that those which draw back to perdition do not believe to the saving of the soul. Why did they go back? Because they were not saved. That's what he says here, and we're going to read that as well. In 1 Peter chapter number 1, what we're talking about is a life that has resulted from the operation of God in the inward man. That's where cheerful endurance comes from. Because, you see, we could use an example of a race. We could say we're going to start right out here at this line and we're going to run up towards Baltimore. When you get tired, you can sit down. But the one that makes it the farthest without stopping, they're going to win. Now, some could go a long ways. And some would have a hard time making it to Kenneth and Barbara's. That's by our strength. That's by man's ability. They're different. But see, when it's dependent not on what I'm able to do, but when the life is dependent upon God's work in the inward man, it ain't whether I'm able to or you're able to or you're just a better person or you're stronger than I am. It's not about that then. 
It's about the power of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His... So listen, He's blessing the name of God the Father. According to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, how much of that did I do? God the Father, He hath by His mercy begotten me again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus. This is a work of God that takes place in the inward man. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. So, this inheritance, that word of itself, an inheritance, not something that I've worked out and laid up in my bank account and I'm going to get to enjoy it one day, like my retirement. That's not what this is. This is an inheritance that mom and daddy worked out, that mom and daddy labored for, and they saved up, and when they die, and when they're gone, I'm going to enjoy in that. See, the word itself implies that I've not done anything for this. This is God's. It's His. He's going to allow me to inherit. Who are kept. So these that are going to inherit heaven, this is what the Bible says about them, who are kept by the power of God through faith, Unto salvation. Who's the one holding the church where they are today? Those that are saved, that have an inheritance in heaven, that have a lively hope and that have been begotten again, they are kept. They're held fast by God's power. God's the one that's doing the work unto salvation through faith ready to be revealed in the last time. So these that are saved, they're kept by the power of God. And this is why that John can say in 1 John chapter number 2, our world would have a real hard time with you saying this in today's language in front of them because you can't judge me. This is what John says. They went out from us. They were a part of the church. They were a part of them. The, the body that John was a member of, they were a part of that outwardly. But they went out from us. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So why did they leave? How can John say because they went out they were not of us? How can John know that? Because it doesn't rely on ability or strength or the will or self-determination of man. This work 
This cheerful endurance in them that are saved it is a result of what God has done in their heart. And these were unable to endure in John's day because they had not had a work of God in their heart. And their going out away proved it. Their ability to turn and go away from the church, from the gospel, from God, proved that there was no work in their heart. If there had been, they would have continued. God would have kept them. Sure, we'll read it. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. What kept the rest of them from going out? The unction, that word means an anointing. They were anointed with the Holy Ghost of God and they were, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, constrained by the love of Christ. So, the group in the first verse did not have that. Exactly. That was the difference between the two was whether they had the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So in Matthew chapter 24, so in light of what we've looked at in Romans so far and the three scriptures we just read, I think we can take this verse in Matthew 24 and we can understand it rightly. Here's another verse of your works, people, that's taken out of context and misused. Matthew 24, verse number 12. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. So could I not jump up here read that one verse and say, you'd better do good or you're not going to be saved. That is in disagreement with everything else that we've read this morning, is it not? That is, that cannot be the interpretation of this scripture because it's out of line with the rest of the book. How are these going to endure? Would you say the same anointing of the Holy One that John was talking about in 1 John? Would you say that it's the same in Hebrews? These believe to the saving of the soul and there is Peter says going to be kept by the power of God? You better believe it. These endure not because they've got a mindset, not because they're better people, but because God's done a work in their heart. You see, what ought to be focused on, really, it's not how much good I've done. Because this here is very deceptive about this man. He thinks a lot higher of himself than he ought to. He always will. That is his nature. It cannot be helped, cannot be prevented. This man thinks highly of himself. No, it's not about how much work 
I've done, how good I've done this week, how good I've done in the last 10 years, what ought to be focused on is whether there's ever been a work of God performed in the heart, whether there's ever been an anointing of the Holy One, whether God has ever begotten me again by His mercy and the Spirit of God. And if not, you can forget about all the good works. You can forget about all the righteousness. None of it's going to be of any value. So the Bible says, let's go back to Romans real quickly. I've got just a few more minutes. Patient continuance in well-doing. Seek for glory. Honor. Immortality. Eternal life. So this is what they're seeking. Glory, splendor or brightness, honor, value, money paid, esteem or dignity, immortality, incorruptibility. So you you see how that works. Immortality, we normally think of not dying. It's a little more than that. It does not corrupt, doesn't decay. So... I believe you could say that many people are looking for these things among man. They're looking for the glory of man. They're looking for man to hold them in dignity. And that's why works are often advertised. I want you to look up to me as a leader and know just how good that I really am. They're looking for glory and honor among man. But now in John, chapter number 5, verse number 44, Jesus speaking, How can you believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? You know what they were doing? You can picture it. You can see it. It goes on in churches today. Here's the group of Pharisees, and they're congratulating one another. And they're honoring one another. And they're saying, boy, you've done real good today. Boy, look how you've, look how you've given to God. Look how you give of yourself. Look what good works you've done. And they commend and they honor and they uplift one another. That's what they were looking for. That's what they desired. They desired for one another to look, to boast, to brag on their own works. But Jesus says, they seek not the honor that cometh from God only. So what is the honor that cometh from God? You know, you could say, you could say a whole lot of things. You, you could. There could be an argument, a debate about a lot of things. But I believe Paul sums it up perfectly that this mystery which has been hidden and has now been made known is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The treasure that is an earthen vessel. The unction that John wrote about in 1 John, the Holy Spirit. It's the honor of God is that God would place His stamp, His seal 
of approval on man, it would be that God would give the Holy Ghost unto us. You know, when we come to church, that's what we ought to seek after. Not that you would look at me as some great wise teacher, but that God would put His approval by the Spirit on me. But you see, lost people, they it's impossible that a lost person has God's seal of approval. So we've got to search for honor from everybody else by crying, by saying the right words, by telling a good story, by fitting in, by telling people how good we've done. By all of these things, we're seeking honor from man and we forgot about the Holy Spirit. Well, know this, the honor, the glory... The splendor. It's not my splendor. It's not my honor. But it's that God would honor me with the power and presence of His Spirit. That's what they're seeking for. In Colossians, and I quoted this, but I'm going to read it. Colossians chapter 1 verse 27. That God would make known what is the riches of His glory. Of this mystery among the Gentiles. Which is? Well, if it's a mystery, we can't know it. Well, he's going to tell us what the mystery is. The riches of His glory among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. One more place and we'll stop. In 2 Corinthians, I believe, chapter 13. Verse 5, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. So examine, to look at closely, to scrutinize, to search out thoroughly, and prove, test. That's what God says to do. So whether I'm in the faith, would you say whether I'm saved or not? So what am I going to examine for? And what am I going to test myself for? Well, he's going to tell us. It's not works. That's what the focus is. Well, I've done good and I'm at church. Listen. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you except you be reprobates, a counterfeit. So test yourself. If you're saved, Cotton said this morning, that presence of the Lord in His life, I tell you what we ought to do. It would be a good test to see what I've got. Seek God that God would, by the Spirit, give you something to say. Because we know this, that if you're saved, Jesus is in you. And if He's not there, you're a reprobate. You're counterfeit. You're fake. You're unapproved. We're talking about a judgment that's coming that's going to be fair and equitable with all of man. We ought to be sure of what we've got and we can be by the grace of God.